Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. How are you going out there, my merry band of In The Shifters? I hope you're doing okay wherever you find yourself. I am sitting here in the usual spot in the little room at the end of our house. Uh, We're getting ready to head away to the beach for a couple of days, which will be nice. Because of that, I am recording at a slightly different time of day to normal, so... Once again, you may hear the gentle ambiance of a West Auckland neighbourhood floating across this microphone recording. Uh, I can periodically hear the uh, neighbourhood birds, uh, the arguing neighbourhood children, the the neighbourhood bogans and their engines roaring past. Anyway, I'm a bit blurry-eyed, to be honest, uh, partly due to a baby who has been, you know, just enjoying having a good time waking up in the night and saying hi... Uh, and also partly self-inflicted, it's fair to say, due to my ridiculous love for the game of cricket, which meant that I stayed up way too late to watch New Zealand win a World Cup semi-final last night. Anyway, here I am, and I'm looking forward to this conversation in today's episode. If you've been following along, then you'll know in the last two episodes, we've started a new series called In the Flesh, and I've started to talk about the body and about how faith and spirituality can sometimes serve to complicate the sense of embodiedness that we inherently have as human creatures. But I'm also suggesting that there are ways in which spirituality could actually be of help to us, especially, I think, for those of us who are trained in the, and shaped in the way of the modern Western mind, which is really a way of being that, quite aside from certain religious ways of seeing things, just tends to disconnect us from our sense of our own physicality, our own physical bodies. Which is a funny thing when you think about it, right? To be at odds with our own bodies, when our bodies are the very thing that make us what and who we are. This is one of the curious and unique features of human consciousness, perhaps, you know, because we've evolved this thing, this uh, this consciousness. We've evolved the capacity to be self-aware, self-critical, self-reflective. And so we can become aware of our own embodiment as a distinct and observable thing, which means that we can then form attitudes and beliefs in relation to our own bodies. And I think this is something that other creatures just can't do because they lack that capacity for self-awareness. And so you don't tend, as far as we can tell, you know, to see uh, creatures in the animal kingdom trying to negotiate their own sense of what the relationship with their body means and what it means to be an embodied creature. Uh, Whereas because we have this sense of self-reflectivity, this self-awareness, this consciousness, then we become aware of our own body and then we have to figure out what do we do with that? What is the nature of that relationship? And so how our spirituality and our faith and our religion uh, relate to this is really important. How can they help us to navigate this sense of relationship between our consciousness and our embodiment? Because this is really important to our sense of well-being and our ability to flourish as human beings. And when ideas and beliefs, whether they're religious or philosophical or wherever they've originated, when those ideas tell us that our bodies are a fundamental problem, well, then we've, I think, made the task of being healthy humans more difficult for ourselves. So what I've tried to do so far is to begin to unpack some of the languages, particularly within the Western Christian tradition itself, that has caused us some complications and challenges in relationship to our own bodies. And this is a conversation that we're going to continue in today's episode by talking about the idea of purity. And, you know, purity is a word that's deeply embedded within the language of Christian spirituality, especially within certain streams of the Christian church. And it's also a word that's often used in reference to 
sexuality and human sexual experience within the religious traditions. And so there are some challenges that arise when we use language like this that I think are really important to unpick and to examine. So this is episode 19 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. So the title of this episode is The Purity Problem. And this conversation really comes on the back of the previous episode in which I talk about certain understandings of holiness, because holiness and purity are often terms that find themselves enmeshed together within the Christian tradition. So what I want to do to start with is to think a little bit about what purity language itself does, because all language functions. Language itself helps us to make sense of our experiences. It's not only about helping us to explain reality, but in some sense language helps us to create our reality because it's only by having certain words at our disposal that we're able to give meaning to that which we experience. And so the language we give our raw or fundamental experience um, is the thing that helps us move from sensation and impression to interpretation and meaning. So the words we use and what we mean when we use these words have a deep psychological function for how we actually understand and interpret the reality that we experience. So I want to think about the psychology of purity language to begin with, uh, and then think about how that functions within the Christian religion, and then see where that conversation takes us in relationship to our bodies. That's some of what I want to do in this episode. Now, a few of these initial ideas I'll start with will draw from a book by uh, Richard Beck, who is a psychologist, because I have to be honest that I am not. I'm a theology guy. Richard Beck is a psychology uh, guy who dabbles in some theology, and he's got a book called Unclean, in which he explores really the psychological implications of purity and holiness language within Christianity, and examines some of the personal and social consequences that flow outward from this. So to do this, we're going to start somewhere perhaps a little odd, and that's what we're going to talk about disgust. Now, generally speaking, uh, when you are born as a little baby human being, You're born without the ability to determine what is good to ingest, to take in, to eat, and what is not, uh, what we should stay away from. And so early in life, we experiment, and our way of sort of understanding the world is to just chuck stuff in our mouths. And so I'm observing this at the moment with little Rufus, who's five months old this week. Time is flying by. But at the moment, kind of everything just goes in the mouth because he's just trying to figure out uh, how to make sense of everything that he's seeing that he can reach out and touch and grab and taste. And and he doesn't yet know what is supposed to be disgusting and what is not. He doesn't yet know what is good for him and what is not. He doesn't yet know what to eat and what not to eat or any of those. None of those ideas have really formed, but he's in the process of forming that sense of what can I take in and what should I not take in. And so when we start to talk about the idea of disgust, well, disgust psychology is something that then develops over time rather than something we're innately born with. And so there are many things that we learn to see as a threat only by experimenting over time and maybe partly by the effect it might have on us, by the taste that it might have, or by the reactions of those people around us. So you shove a bunch of dirt into your mouth when you're a little baby uh, and you might think that's amazing, but your parents or or caregivers might um, find it less amazing. Uh, And so you learn over time that that's something that's disgusting, that's something that shouldn't go into your body. 
And these disgust reflexes that we develop are designed as protective mechanisms, right? We, what's going on for us is we're trying to determine what's okay and normal and allowed to be a part of us because it's okay to consume and what actually needs to remain external and should be repelled. So disgust psychology has to do with the sense of physical boundary, what should come in to me and what should not. Uh, and there are some curious things that happen in disgust psychology. So one of the things that Beck mentions in his book is a famous experiment, psychological experiment of the spit in the cup, right? So if you ask somebody to, to spit into a cup, generally speaking, they find that kind of gross because spit is something that's seen as disgusting. But what's interesting about spit when it goes into the cup is it kind of becomes disgusting because, in fact, the saliva is inside your mouth the whole time. And when the saliva is inside your mouth, it's not disgusting. But when it exits your mouth and now you see it in a cup, it becomes disgusting. And now if we were to ask people, and what they do is ask people to then drink that spit back from the cup into their mouth, most people are really grossed out by that idea, unless they've really steeled themselves as a, as a kind of response to that. Um, and so something that was in their mouth just moments ago has now been expelled, it's become disgusting, and now you don't want to put it back in your mouth. It's become spit, it's no longer saliva, now it's spit, and it's kind of gross and disgusting. So when it's inside us, it's normal, but then when it's expelled, it becomes disgusting. And so there's a boundary of self that's going on here that's actually whether subconsciously helping us to determine whether something's actually okay or not. And so it's not necessarily entirely logical at this point. Because what's happening is that disgust psychology, once it's developed, is actually like a compulsive or an innate reflex. So although we weren't born with it, we develop it, uh, but it's but it's this compulsive reflex that we don't really intellectually process. It bypasses our logic. So for example, if you were to take a glass of orange juice and put a cockroach into it and give it a nice stir, I believe cockroach is a universally detested creature, um, as far as I can tell. If not, if you're a lover of the cockroach, maybe it's a delicacy where you're from, which would be unusual to me, but perhaps that's true, then choose another creature that is less appealing. And imagine that being put in the juice. Um, now, one of the things that happens is if you take the cockroach back out and then you pass it to someone, and they've seen you do this, and you ask them if they want to drink the juice, generally speaking, they will say, no, that's disgusting, there's been a cockroach in the juice. Then if you go through a process of taking that juice and filtering it and processing it and filtering it and processing it so that you have cleaned out all of the, um, any kind of uh, thing that might have contaminated it from the cockroach, and so you can now tell the person, this orange juice is definitely fine, even though it's had a cockroach in it, we've cleaned it up and it's safe to drink. Most people will still not drink the juice, even though logically they know that the juice is fine. So it might have been refiltered and reworked so that it's now totally healthy and you can be told that, but still not want to drink the juice because the cockroach has been in it. And so what you see here is actually there's this compulsive disgust reflex going on that's not just about the logic of the situation, but actually is about something more subconscious or, or visceral than that. Now, one of the things that psychologists like Beck observe is that in human beings, disgust psychology doesn't just stay with food, like juice that's had a cockroach in it. 
It extends from food into the social and moral and spiritual domains of our lives, and it's often related to the language of purity. So, if we were to use the language of purity when it comes to the cockroach-infested orange juice, we're talking about the possibility of that the purity of that juice being irreversibly damaged by the contamination of the cockroach. But then when we use the language of purity in relationship to our own sense of self and others, one of the things that can often happen is that triggers a similar kind of reflex. In other words, a kind of disgust psychology kicks in. And so there are not just food-related or bound, physical boundary-related uh, disgust reflexes at play in the human experience, but there are also personal, social, moral, and religious reactions that happen. Uh, and let me use the, the principles of contamination to, to explain what I mean here. So they talk about four observable principles of contamination, of things that relate to the damaging of purity. And the first is this, that uh, contamination comes through contact. And so... Obviously, in the case, for example, of the cockroach and the juice, the juice has come into physical contact with uh, the cockroach. And so contamination comes from contact or maybe even just from physical proximity. You can see the same kind of principle extended into the social domains of life. Uh, in societies, for example, where you might have some kind of segregation, apartheid, uh, whatever you might like to call it, where, for example people of a particular ethnicity, race or culture are not allowed to drink from the same tap or the same fountain or use the same bathrooms or whatever it might be. And what you can see here is there's this, um, there's the development of this contamination idea in relation to other human beings because other human beings are seen as threats, as contaminants to the purity of one's own in-group. And, uh, and, and this is related, in a sense, to disgust psychology because there's absolutely zero logic to this, right? It doesn't make sense at all. And yet people who have been trained to um, have this innate sense of wanting to preserve the purity of their people, of their race in this particular example, then you have this contamination principle at play here, that contamination, your purity, can be damaged through coming into some kind of contact or physical proximity. So the first observable principle of contamination then is contact. The second is what's called dose insensitivity. In other words, when you use the language of purity, it's all or nothing. These are binary judgments. Um, you know, because when you use the language of purity, you can't have something that's a little bit pure or somewhat pure or half pure or a bit pure, right? That's not the way the language of purity actually works because purity, uh, by very definition, is kind of 100% in or nothing. And so um, this can sometimes also become illogical. So, for example, if you were to ask people, what is the satisfactory level of toxins in the dirt of a children's playground? Well, if you were to do a survey of the neighbourhood... Uh, you're generally fine and you said, you know, are you happy with this level of toxin or this level? Even if you could show that under a certain level is completely safe, generally people will want to say, no, it must be 100% pure, otherwise it's no good. Uh, and so you can see this actually at play in general life in all sorts of ways, people saying, I can't have that uh, vaccine, for example, <laughs> because uh, there's a toxin in it 
even if the toxin is found in higher levels within the everyday vegetables they might eat. Um, so there's a dose insensitivity to the judgments that we make when it comes to purity. It's all or nothing. It's binary. It's yes or no, pure or impure. And then there's a sense, the third principle of contamination is a sense of permanence. In other words, things are spoiled and then unable to be repurified, generally speaking. And so if you take the cockroach and the juice, for example, the juice can't now be purified and redeemed for people. Uh, and then the last principle of contamination is negative dominance. And that's the idea. Again, this is related in a sense to the binary nature of it, is that bad spoils the good. That if you have something or someone that is pure, well, all you know, they don't make impure things pure, impure things make pure things impure. <laughs> That's a great sentence. This is how it used to play out at youth group uh, in the church. Uh, one of the illustrations was that you should stand on a chair and uh, then you should have a friend stand on the ground next to you. And you should grab one another's hand and then the person on top of the chair would have to try and pull the person on the ground up onto the chair and the person on the ground would have to try and pull the person down onto the ground off the chair. And, you know, the way the illustration always worked out is that the person on the ground could always pull the person off the chair. And the, the uh, consequence, the implication, the teaching point in youth group was, and that's what it's like when you hang out with people who are bad or naughty or sinful or whatever it might be. Uh, you can't pull them up. They will always pull you down. In other words, the negative, the bad spoils the good. And so instead of this idea that maybe the good presence might lift others, uh, it's always this negative dominance. How much do you need to make something impure? Only a little, little bit. Now, you might be listening along at this point and thinking, what does all this have to do with spirituality and faith and the body? Well, this is very much related to the language of purity. And one of the ways this plays out in the Christian tradition is that there are particular arenas of life that are associated most commonly with these notions of purity and impurity. Uh, and, and in other words, if we talk about someone, for example, stealing, you know, if you talk about a thief, let's say someone gets caught stealing something from their neighbour. Within the church context one wouldn't usually talk about them losing their purity when they did that. They've, they might have done something bad, they might have done something naughty, but they haven't lost or damaged purity. But within conservative Christianity, for example, if you talk about someone losing their virginity before marriage, like sleeping with their partner before they're married, then they are talked about very much as having lost or damaged their sexual purity. So what we find is that in relationship to sexuality in particular, there is all sorts of purity language at work in the Christian tradition. And you even had, you know, the emergence of an entire promoted and marketed purity culture, which I guess a cynical take on that would be it's a great way to make a bunch of money off young people. <laughs> but what it did do was employ the language of purity to talk about saving yourself a marriage. It's particularly big in North America, I think, but it's all, it was felt in New Zealand here, very much so, and also in many other parts of the world, and in particular within evangelical Christianity. And the kind of the promotion and marketing of purity culture was around, you know, purity rings that people, uh, usually young women, actually were encouraged to purchase and to wear on their wedding fingers to sign themselves up as being kept pure until marriage. 
repeated encouragements for all kinds of young people in particular to stay pure, whether it was from sex itself or from porn or masturbation or impure thoughts or lust or whatever it might have been. And so typically, religious language about sex and sexuality is shaped almost entirely, especially at this point in one's life, by a purity discourse. And because a lot of time the purity language around sexuality, as well as the sense that sexuality itself, I guess, is this very intimate and potent reality, what it means is that often sex and sexuality is the thing that triggers the most volatile and visceral reactions from certain corners of the Christian community. So think about what happens for a young person in a church who crosses a perceived line of sexual purity. You know, they, they sleep with their partner, but, but they're not married. Or, and, it's, and it's discovered somehow in the church. Or as we mentioned in our discussion on holiness, this might not just be about an external observable action uh, that can be discovered in this sense. And so even those people who have somehow managed their external behaviours to be in line with this purity framework, so, you know, they've saved themselves for marriage perhaps, have often not been able to sustain an internal sense of Christian purity, you know, because of porn or because of uh, some kind of sexual desire for another or some kind of same-sex attraction or whatever might be considered impure within their context. And because purity is all or nothing, well, any of those things have the ability to damage the purity of one's external and internal self. And often what happens is you see these principles of contamination at work because in, in, retro, in, in examining this, there's, it's being shaped by purity language which triggers psychology of contamination and of disgust. So for someone in this kind of situation, they've lost something perhaps that they can never get back. They feel like they are the juice that's had a cockroach stirred in it. And no amount of cleaning them up can really restore their purity to them because it's either intact or it's lost. So this kind of very binary thinking, I think, can ultimately be incredibly dangerous for how people might view themselves because the thing that has become spoiled is, is them. I can't expel the contaminant if it's me that has become contaminated. And so once purity is lost, well, it's almost impossible to regain and so what we find is this then becomes connected often with feelings of disgust towards oneself, of shame, of guilt, even of self-loathing, self-flagellation. And the result of this is usually that people end up hiding things away so that it won't become known. And of course, this relates you know, directly to our bodies because sexuality is so deeply connected to our own sense of embodiment. It's our bodies in which we locate our sexual identity and so it's the body that becomes the site of impurity, of contamination, of damage, of corruption or whatever else it might be. This binary language just makes it incredibly difficult to find a sense of healthy and sustainable self-acceptance. So if we view even more broadly here our sense of personal morality, of being a good religious person, of having a healthy spirituality, if we, if we view all of that primarily through a purity and contamination framework, then often what happens is we try and forcefully push away everything that might compromise that. But because impurity is actually damaged by even the slightest transgression, there's actually very little chance of maintaining a sense or feeling of true purity internally. And so the result for this, of this for many people can be a deep level of anxiety. People try and put on this happy kind of religious face, but beneath the surface there's a whole lot of internal dialogue going on that others might not observe. You know, I think back to when I was in my early 20s, for example, and I had this 
very puritanical um, view of alcohol, for example. And uh, what this meant was that I had decided at this particular point in my life that a good Christian person should not drink alcohol. And um, I looked with, what's the best way to describe this? A, a look of judgment and disdain upon all of those of my friends when I would observe them having even a glass of wine or a beer. Because I would say, well, what's the point of any of that? Because all you're really doing is just wanting to get drunk, you silly sinners. <laughs> oh, great. Um, it's always great just looking back at yourself, isn't it, sometimes? And uh, I remember getting into this conversation with some of my friends and making this declaration, you know, beer, beer shall never pass these lips. I was trying for this kind of 100% all in, keep myself pure kind of mentality. And it came with this very, this strong sense of external self-righteousness. And yet my deep internal sense of anxiety about my personal sense of standing and purity before God was always at question. And so my external bravado and, uh, and judgmentalism was really an attempt to push away the feelings that I was feeling about myself internally. And little did I know, of course, that later on in life I would develop quite a love for beverages. Um, and so there are, there are social implications to this conversation as well, right? Because sometimes what will happen is is this kind of squashing down of stuff because of the experience of I don't want to acknowledge that part of me that might be contaminating me. Well, sometimes then this manifests as anger when we observe that same thing in others because anger driven by the reality that we're recognising something in others that's actually within us. And what you find, and what you're really most clearly seeing this, is, is many Christian leaders who have sort of been the most aggressive moral campaigners on personal morality, sexual morality, and so on, striving to be the moral police of the world, often found to be struggling with the very things that they have angrily protested against. At other times, this kind of the social implications here manifest as excluding those who are different because they'll damage the purity of the in-group, you know. So as I mentioned, this can take shape along racial or ethnic lines or gender or sexuality, whatever the dividing line of purity might be so that we can protect the purity of the in-group. Now, of course, the challenge to all of this, even though it's couched in very Christian language, is that the centre of both Jewish and Christian spirituality and ethics is this idea of learning to love our neighbours as we love ourselves. And if we're to learn what it is to love ourselves and others, then we have to come to terms with ourselves as we truly are. And so in this context, love is the thing that allows us to genuinely, authentically, in fact, cross these kinds of social, moral, and purity boundaries. It's one way of actually recognising and defining love it's to understand it as the embrace and the inclusion of self and others that crosses all of those transgressive boundaries. So in the Jesus story, for example, in the Christian tradition, one of the repeated things that Jesus would do that most deeply, deeply upset the religious leaders who were really concerned with purity was his transgressing of purity boundaries, not only in himself, but then also the way he would embrace and include those who were deemed impure by the system, whether they were drunks or prostitutes or lepers or Gentiles. 
these were the people he wanted to spend his time with. And one of the things then later on in the wake of the Jesus story that made the early Christian community so profoundly transformative and revolutionary in its context was the breaking down of divisions based on race and gender and social class. So these boundary markers get broken down and we begin to recognise the deep connectedness between people who had previously been isolated from one another because of all sorts of social and moral and religious boundaries shaped by a purity discourse. So I want to encourage a rethinking of purity language. And perhaps, I don't know, perhaps there are ways that purity language can still be helpful. Jesus did say that the pure in heart will see God, that somehow purity of heart will help us to sense and be aware of the divine presence around us. But rather than a pure heart being about managing internal and external sort of purity and holiness behaviours, to seek a pure heart in the context of Jesus and his take on things has a lot more to do with the way that we love ourselves and one another. Purity of heart has to do with kindness and grace towards each other. And so in this sense, perhaps purity can be associated then with attributes like beauty and generosity and inclusion and love. Now, I'm not sure, to be honest, as even as I say this, whether the language itself is redeemable. <laughs> Maybe it just needs to be thrown out and we need to find something else. But if it is to be used, I think these are the ways that perhaps it could be useful for us. The usage of purity to judge oneself and others, to see the possibility of contamination everywhere that we go, and even when we don't see the contaminants out there, we feel them on the inside. Well, this is a deeply unhappy anxious, agitated, and unhealthy way to live. And I think we need to overthrow it. It needs an entire revamp. Otherwise, we are, what we're going to find is that the Christian tradition continues to propagate shame and judgment and exclusion and division and self-loathing. And that's not good for anyone. So... That's all for this episode. What a what a high note to finish on. Uh, thanks once again to Reese and Michelle for the sound editing and massaging of my voice quality. Uh, I'm going to be back with more of the In the Flesh series on the next episode of In the Shift.